fortune. The road was dark and dangerous, twisting and full of monsters. And after many months of traveling, he arrived at the foot of the great mountain where he knew he would find what it was he was seeking. You all know this story, and you know how it ends. The young man battles the final monster, maybe a dragon or an ogre, and he frees the princess or finds the treasure or reclaims the lost cup or whatever it is. This is a story that has been told over and over again from the Morta Arthur through Lord of the Rings, Top Gun, and Avengers. It's the story of the hero's quest, and it is a fundamental story of us being human. This is why we've been telling it to each other over and over and over again since we learned to communicate. But it does raise an interesting point. If the hero's quest is so foundational to our understanding of the world as human beings, why is it that so much of the time we are so unheroic? Most of the time, humans do not rise to the challenge. When faced with danger, they turn tail and run or keep our mouths closed, go along to get along. Sometimes people do set off on a quest, but more often than not, it's a mission of conquest, claiming new lands or enslaving new peoples for their own good. And our gospel reading today has the sort of broken hero's quest that is so normal to us, that is more common than the tales of great bravery. In our gospel reading today, a young man does leave his home. He goes to a distant land, but he's not seeking his fortune. He's wasting someone else's. And if we dig into this story today together, I think what we'll find is that the hero's quest is not our most foundational story. There's a story about humankind that is older and deeper. And it's a story in light of which the prodigal son is not just a moral lesson or a story about something that happened a long time ago. It's the story of the human person and the human condition. So take out your Bibles and open to Luke chapter 15. We're going to begin at verse 11. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. It's pretty obvious to us that the younger son's use of his father's fortune, squandering it on partying and prostitutes, is bad enough. 
But the real insult here isn't how he uses his money, it's the way he treats his father. When he goes to his father and asks, give me my inheritance, he is effectively telling his father, you are dead to me. I wish you were dead. I want no relationship with you as a person, as a family. I only want what you can give me. This is a fundamental severing of their relationship. And so he takes the money and turns his back on his father and walks away. And for a while, things are okay, I guess, if that's what you like. But eventually, a famine comes. Then the party's really over. Eventually, a famine strikes this foreign land where this young man is living. And here's the real irony. Scripture tells us that the famine comes to that land. And this means that if he had never left home, if this man had stayed and stayed in, his re- in relationship with his father, he would have no reason to be hungry. The famine, the hunger is not inevitable. It's the result of the severing of his relationships. It's the result of walking away. And the thing is, hunger, famine, is never truly inevitable. In the beginning, God puts his creatures in a garden, and the garden is full of food, full of things to eat, because God never intends for us to be hungry. God does not plan for his creatures to be hungry. He plans to feed them. But like the younger brother, we leave the garden. We walk away. And so hunger is a sign of the fall. It's the sign of the severing of relationship. And even those of us who are blessed to always have enough food to eat struggle with hunger. Every person has something that they are hungry for in a deep and powerful way. And so we set off on these quests over and over and over again to try to fill ourselves up. Some people are hungry for connection. And so we add a million people on Facebook and we fill up our social calendars so that we're busy all the time. But when the party's over and we come home alone, we are still lonely. Some people are hungry for peace, for the anxiety and the chaos in the world to stop just for one minute. And so we numb ourselves with television and internet and medication and food and alcohol and things to just make the world be quiet. Some of us are hungry for security or stability. And so like the prodigal, we find ourselves working and working and working and getting more and more and more stuff and more and more money. And still we are starving to death. Each of us is hungry for something. And it's out of this place of hunger that the prodigal has his next realization in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. 
I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. The first thing to notice here is that this moment of realization, of clarity, when the young man comes to himself, is not the moment he realizes he's messed up. He actually already knows that because he's starving to death. He realizes this is not an ideal situation. The moment he comes to himself, the moment of realization, is the moment he realizes that he needs help. That no matter how many hours he works for this foreign person, no matter how much time he puts in, he's never going to dig himself out. But he'll always be perishing unless he depends on the grace of his father. The name that the church gives to this moment of realization, this moment that we need help, is Lent. We are given a whole season not to remember that we've messed up. We, like the prodigal, already know that. If you don't believe me, watch the news for five minutes. It is very obvious that humanity has messed up. And so the point of Lent is not to dwell in that or to feel bad about the things we've done, but to come to ourselves to recognize that we need help. That we are stuck in a situation that no matter how much we work, no matter how many quests we embark on, we are never going to be able to save ourselves. And the second thing to notice is that as this disgraced son is walking home, head down, with nothing, to the man he insulted and rejected, his father runs to him while he is still a long way off. While he is still a long way off. Do you see what this means? This means that even though his son told him, I want nothing to do with you, you are as good as dead to me, the father never stopped waiting for him to come home. Never stopped watching and hoping that he might see him on the horizon. The name Adam just means man. It means human being. Because Adam's story is our story. It is our ancient myth. And after Adam has broken his relationship with God, after he and Eve has rebelled against God, they are hiding in the garden. And the Lord God comes walking, calling, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Comes looking for them. Adam, where are you? The return of the prodigal picks up right here, right as everything is falling apart in Eden. Eden, Adam, where are you? Look at verses 21 through 24. 
Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The prodigal's plan is to come home to his father, to apologize, to ask forgiveness, and to ask to be made a servant. He has come to himself. He has seen the full extent of his condition, so he knows better than to ask to be restored to sonship by the man he rejected. So he's going to ask to be a servant, a slave, so that at least he can have something to eat. And the fair response from the father, the fair thing to do would be to tell him to go away. You don't want me, I don't want you. The merciful response from the father would be to take him in as a servant, to let him work for a wage. But the father's response exceeds fairness. It exceeds mercy. He does not just forgive his son, he lifts him up, he exalts him, he restores him to sonship, to power in the household. God is not just merciful. He is not just forgiving. He doesn't just want to wash away our sins and give us a blank slate to start over. He wants to restore us, to exalt us, to lift us up, to repair that which is broken, to return that which has been lost. Baptism is the moment when the Christian community comes to itself. It is the less a moment of an individual committing himself to Christ and more of a moment that we all together recognize the state of the human condition, recognize like the prodigal that we need help, that we are dependent on something outside of us. It's the recognition that even a little tiny baby has a wounded nature, that even a little baby, no matter who raises them or where they go to school, is going to wander away from God is going to reject relationship, is going to squander the inheritance that God has given it. Baptism is not the moment that we choose God. It's the moment we acknowledge that we have already rejected him. Because the Christian life is about more than just forgiveness. When we're baptized into Christ, we are buried with him and raised to new life. And then what happens? We're invited to the feast, to the table. And so there is much rejoicing. For one who was dead is alive again. And so I wonder... Where is God calling you to be more fully alive, more fully human? 
What inheritance are you squandering? Wasting. How, here and now, are you called to live out of your baptism and into the feast that has been prepared? Once upon a time, there was a father who wanted to offer his children everything, who made them for joy. But they came to him and demanded their inheritance and rejected their relationship with him. And so, with a breaking heart, he watched them walk away into death, into war and famine, addiction, destruction, and ruin. But he never stopped watching and waiting. And then in the fullness of time, while we were yet a long way off, God himself came running towards us. Amen. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures.